time ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima. Ich bin ein Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this. Nailed it. And 30 minutes later... Oh, God. The American people, I think, is good people. They, are, they have not to judge with the guilty of all the lies. I'm not really into jabby-jabby. Don't fuck up. All right, enough of that yeah. silliness. This is a serious right. podcast for serious people. Exactly. I've got my pipe. Serious topic. And, exactly, I was going to say, we're going to science the fuck out of these episodes. So, this is serious people. Welcome back to the Cold War episode 149. Sounds right. Yeah, what the fuck would you know? We just discovered during the week that you entirely skipped an episode of the Renaissance show. But in, to you know, not in my defence, in my blame, right. I renamed the next one wrong and didn't notice either. But it was um, tag team. anyway, we tag teamed it. Yeah, yeah we both <laughs> fucked it up. <laughs> I think I think this is Cold War One Forty Nine. We finished our Israel series for now. We right. will revisit, obviously, the Israel saga. At some point in the future. But right now we want to move on because there's a lot of other things. You know, we're, in the, we're still really uh, trying to talk about what's going on in the late 40s, mm-hmm. early 50s in the Cold War. Mm-hmm. And there's a ton of shit obviously happening concurrently. Right. And we could jump around oh, yeah. like books do. A little yeah. bit of this, a little bit of that. <clears throat> A little bit of London, all night long. A little bit of Stalin and the bomb. A little bit of Jews in Israel. A little bit of Taito Yugoslavia. But that's no, not, not, you know, that's not how we, we do. We, 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 well, we jump around enough as it is when jumpers. we're trying to stick to a topic. Like right. if, if we, if we, if if you had jumping the normal jumping around that we do, and then you jump around, right? Like oh. the, that, yeah. the, the the parallel universes would like <laughs> you know open up. We'd get sucked into a fucking right. vortex of jumping around. It's not. It's Star Trek. Um, yeah. So this for the next uh, few episodes, we're going to talk about the Soviet Union's development of the bomb, yes. nuclear capabilities. Because obviously, the Cold War, if it's anything, it's about this uh, nuclear stalemate between the East and the West. And we, you know, we need to talk a little bit about how Stalin and the Soviet Union got the bomb. Because I think, I, I don't know if you agree with me here, Ray, yeah. but I suspect that it's commonly thought of in the West right. That the Soviet Union just stole all of America's secrets to the bomb Mm -hmm. and basically ripped them off. But that's not exactly correct. No. No, in fact, we're going to find it uh, during a point in the 1930s, the Soviet scientists, even though they've been cut off in some ways from the outside world, they are doing commendable work. They're keeping up with the Europeans and the Americans, and they're they're doing it not for the state. They're doing it for scienti- uh, scientific uh, curiosity alone. So there was a while there when they were kicking ass and taking names, and they were doing very respectable work until later when... Uh, Stalin's purges, they start to get cut off from the outside world, but we'll go into that later. But they were doing a great job all on their own, and they're very proud of what they've done. Yeah. So when nuclear fission, as we talked about, 
if you haven't heard them, uh, go back and, and listen to right our Manhattan Project. Uh, no, no, not right now, right? No? I mean, not right now. No, we don't want them to do them right now. We want them to listen to this episode and then... I disagree. Yeah? You yeah. think they should just, you know, well, okay, whatever. <laughs> as long as they're giving us their no, money. No, you know what? Fuck what you're right. Just give us the money. <laughs> Uh, no, you, really. you're right, because this comes first. So, yeah, Cam's right for once. I'm wrong for once. Listen to these now and then go listen to that later, even though those Doesn't came matter. out first. But when we did our Manhattan Project episodes, we are talking about how it was Germans that discovered nuclear fission back in December of 1938. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the Soviets were as quick to pick up on that as scientists were around the rest of the world, including in the West. In 1939, uh, a Soviet physicist, Igor Tam, 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 uh, he, who later on, by the way, in 1958, received a Nobel Prize in physics. Nice. He uh, said to a group of his students in Russia, do you know what this new discovery means? It means a bomb can be built that will destroy a city out to a radius of maybe 10 kilometres. Damn. Now, you know, so he he had the vision. Right. A lot of other physicists in Russia had the vision. This is well before the Americans had even started working on their bomb. What year did the Manhattan Project start? It was like after the US got involved in the war, really. It was sort of so 42-ish, I think. Late 41, 42, they started to try and get FDR on board. Mm -hmm. So... The Russians, just as quick as everyone else, the physicists to see, uh, you know, what this meant, and they immediately started to work on figuring out how to build a bomb. Yeah. Now, the main guy leading up the research initially was Igor Kurchatov. He ran a nuclear laboratory at the Leningrad Physico-Technical Institute and later on, as we'll see, he when they get really, really serious about this, he becomes the scientific director of the Atomic Project. But at the, in these early stages, he's coordinating research, not only in his own laboratory, but there are also scientists working at it in other places in the Soviet Union, including the Radium Institute and the Institute of Physical Chemistry. He's sort of overseeing all of that, and uh, they're all trying to figure out how do we uh, capture this process of nuclear fission that the Germans had discovered. Now, uh, interesting, if you look up pictures of this guy, Kurchatov, he's a crazy-looking motherfucker. He kind of looks a bit like um, Rasputin. He's got this crazy, classic sort of uh, Russian (laughs) beard. And apparently the deal is, you remember when we did the Caesar shows, how... It was a thing in ancient Rome where they wouldn't shave their beard or cut their hair until they'd right. achieved their, you know, objective. Avenge or when, something. I think we, yeah. Yeah, with Julius Caesar, he had to avenge a couple of his guys that got killed when he was in Gaul. Mm-hmm. Um, I think uh, Augustus uh, or Tiberius may have done it at the same stage. Germanicus, I mean, when he went to revenge Varus in Germany later on, maybe. Well, uh, Kurchatov. Love this idea. He was a classicist at heart. He swore he would not cut his beard until they'd built an A-bomb. Oh, and But not only did he grow a beard, he had it cut into a whole range of really eccentric styles because nice. he was like, well, I'm going to grow a beard. Yeah, I mean, yeah. But, uh, I, you know, I don't want to look like a you know, fucking, you know, uh, Rasputin. Right, or, right. Yeah, or, or, or you know, uh, uh, 
Cuban communist uh, out of the you know I don't want to look grizzly. I'm going to look fucking cool because right. what most people don't know is in his off time when he wasn't building a bombs. He was working as a brewster in a funky little bar oh, yeah. in downtown Mexico. This is important. They had, yeah. they had like you know, a, a classic sort of Velvet Underground LP covers <laughs> up on the up on the walls, uh, cold drip. These yeah. really beautifully hand blown glass cold drip coffee things. Right. A um, lot, a lot of sort of uh, highbrow uh, magazines, old secondhand couches that they'd got from the op shop. A lot of character you could sit on. Yeah, a lot of character. Oh, yeah, yeah and, and, and a lot of a lot of jazz right. playing really loud, sort of. You know, Miles Davis, yeah. Coltrane, that kind of stuff. Funk, and right. you know, and he was just people there just knew him as Ziggy K. They didn't know <laughs> he was, and you know, didn't Moscow's matter. leading nuclear scientist. He was just Ziggy K. Ziggy <laughs> K. Give me a, give me another uh, ristretto. Coming up, he would say. Coming up. Iggy K, latte me, or something like that. I do have to ask, did he put his hair in a ponytail and then put the apron on? Or do you put the apron on? Oh, yeah, I mean, of it's course. very, how, how, how do you do that? His, his, his uh, nickname for the rest of his life was The Beard. <laughs> okay. Which actually was like Castro's nickname later on. But uh, yeah, he was just, he was known as The Beard. Right. So that's how oh. great he's been. Seriously, look it up. There's a lot of commemorative stamps. Right. Of Iggy K and uh, fucking, I was seriously impressed. I, I I didn't know this story about the beard. I, I googled him and I'm looking at his. I'm like, oh, whoa, <laughs> what the of- fuck is going on there? <laughs> and then I read this story. I'm like, all right, you know, it's a lot of uh, shout out to yeah. shout out to Iggy K, man. He he, he was hardcore. So anyway, um, the Radium Institute was directed by a guy called Vitali Klopin. He was a radio chemist who developed the industrial processes for producing plutonium. The director of the Institute of Physical Chemistry was Nikolai Semenov. He had done important work on chain reactions and later on got the 1956 Nobel Prize in chemistry. So they had a lot of um, serious guys here, yes. hard hitters yes. in, the, uh, in the, the, the late 30s. Now, this is after... The, the Purge, right? The Great Purge. Oh, yeah. So 30, 37 to 38. Um, these guys, you know, are working after that. The the discovery of nuclear fission wasn't until December of 1938 when the, you know, the key, uh, you know, uh, period of the Great Purge has already been and gone. Right. I mean, if, if, if they hadn't had the Great Purge, I'm going to talk a lot about the Purge later on because I've spent a lot of time... Mm. Uh, uh, in the last few weeks, uh, reading I up on the purge. Yeah, how can you tell? You because I've got a hard on. No, <laughs> certain posts on Facebook about oh, style yeah. and stuff like that. So I could, yeah. You know, I, I I was digging into. You know, I'm I'm highly skeptical, as you know, of anything written about the Soviet Union in the West. Mm-hmm. So I was I, I spent a lot of time digging up um, pro-Soviet Union, pro-Stalin-esque histories and biographies to get the other side of the sure. story and then reading the, the current stuff and then reading the current stuff that's come out of Moscow in the last 10 years. Again, some of, I'd already had these books and I'd read them at the when we did our early sort of Stalin and, and, and uh, Cold War, uh, like... Yalta and Potsdam. Mm-hmm. I dug them up specifically to focus on the person, see what the current research, because the archives have been opened up in the last 20 years and, and, you know, looking at 
um, what Kvelnyuk and people like that, who's like the head of the Soviet archives uh, or the Russian archives right. in Moscow, has been able to dig up. So um, anyway, more about that later on. Um, so yes, so this is where they're up to in the late 30s. They got a couple, they got three stellar top-rated fucking Nobel Prize-winning uh, physicists and chemists working on the problem. Yeah. Now, one of the things that I liked about, how did you say his name? Kurchatov? I, I feel like I'm saying it Iggy, wrong. Just Iggy K. Just call Iggy him Iggy K, K man. Iggy, no, I, what I thought was interesting about him was he had this very rare talent of, even though he was a young man, he was brought in very young, and we can go into that or not, but the point is he was brought into the Institute pretty young, but he was known very quickly, got the reputation of being called the general. He liked to take initiative, he liked to issue commands, but he was such a charming person and he had a very good self-deprecating humor that people would still like him even though he would go around barking orders but you had someone who would just grasp problems put people in charge of different things and move and pretty much encourage them to move on it so very young man but very brilliant he had a lot of uh, different uh, experiences in his young life whether it's shipbuilding or whatever this guy could do a lot of different things and someone that like that who comes in forceful, dynamic personality is able to guide men who are older and more experienced than him, but he was the kind of leader that they needed who kept things going, and it was very practical. There was always progress and laughs whenever he was around. Yeah, actually, if you look at some of the photos of him in his younger days, Mm -hmm. in his early 20s, he looks a little bit like, uh, I don't know, Stan Laurel. Right. He's, uh, he's, he's got a big grin, happy, very happy-looking guy. Uh, then you look at the older photos of him when he's working on the bomb project, not so happy. No. He looks like, he looks like somebody just uh, you know stabbed his wife in front of him and slit her throat when he's got the beard. Looks very serious. But, yeah, he was born in 1903, so when all of this is kicking off, he's in his mid-30s. Right. Um, but, you know, a lot of, as we know in the Manhattan Project, too, I mean, a lot of the guys working on that were very, very young. Yes. I mean, yeah, Richard Feynman was, like, in his early 20s. Uh, a lot of these guys, your best scientists, uh, particularly with new stuff like this, when it's cutting edge, they're going to be they're going to be young. They're going to be uh, whip smart. They're going to be a little bit arrogant. That's what you want from your oh yes, eager leading physicists yes. and chemists. Yeah, eager, arrogant, smarter than fuck, yeah. um, etc. Like a fighter pilot, just cocky as fuck, buzzing the tower, that kind of stuff. <laughs> God damn you, Maverick! Are you going to see? You're the- a danger to everyone, but God damn it, Maverick, you can fly. Are you going to see the new movie? The new top? No. Okay, it's like Star Wars, right? Don't don't mess with it. Just just leave it where it's at. Well, so, no, Val Kilmer's not in it. Like if Val Kilmer was in it, maybe totally. I'd go okay. see it. Val Kilmer's not oh. in it. No, no, Val. If you don't have Val Kilmer, you don't have me. You have a thing for him? I didn't know that. Fuck yes, man, Val Kilmer. Oh, <laughs> in the day, he was the man. <laughs> oh my god! You can, hey Maverick, you can ride my tail anytime. <laughs> You wish yeah. he'd say that to you. I, I got it. Yeah. I got it. Yeah. When he well, had his I, shirt I, off, playing <laughs> playing volleyball oh, in the sand. Oh, oh I'm going to need a moment. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, but I'm oh, glad by the way. You, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, one of our, one of our uh, German listeners uh, who may or may not be homosexual uh, told me that the use of the word sodomite Right. Like we used in oh, our bullshit uh-oh. filter show I was just, yes. not, not good in the gay community. He said, he said, Sodomite in the gay community is the equivalent of the N-word in oh, the uh, I poly- black community. I because, apologize then. 
Because he said it was the last thing a lot of homosexuals heard when before they were, uh, you know, attacked <gasps> oh or strung up or killed or whatever. Okay. I said, oh, well, we, we just thought it was uh, funny. <laughs> we just thought yeah. it was a funny we, old-timey, we bodily not, word. We, exactly. Yeah. We were not trying to insult yeah. or make anybody feel uncomfortable. We thought we were being entertaining. Well, no, we did. We wanted everyone to feel uncomfortable. That's why it's <laughs> equally, funny. Equally uncomfortable. It's not... It's not funny if you don't feel uncomfortable. That's the basis of humor is making people feel uncomfortable. I'm uncomfortable. We didn't right want now. to we didn't want to like trigger anyone or, right, or, right. or, or no. insult them. But I said to him, look, we didn't know that. He goes, I know. He goes, I know you. He goes, I know, I know you didn't know that. I know, I know you're not anti you know you're not homophobic. I know you love everybody sometimes too much. <laughs> um, in Vegas, uh, but he said, uh, "Just letting you know." And I go, "Yeah, well, he, he, I'm glad that we know." And now that we know, yeah, quite frankly, we'll we'll probably still use it because um, we <laughs> but, still use the N word uh, because um, you know we, yeah. we mean it with love and affection. It's not. Let's anyway. go with that one. Yeah. <clears throat> Anywho, Soviet physicists. Yes. Uh, you know, we're, we're following the the sort of international work. I mean, this really was in the early stages. Before the war, uh, there was a fair amount of dialogue going on between international scientific yes. communities. Journals. About, uh, yeah. Yeah. As science should be, and at the uh, best of times is. Just put it out there. Scientists around the world, it's a huge collaborative effort. Uh, but their work on nuclear fission was obviously being paralleled in places like the US and the UK and in Germany, of course. They were still working on it. But the the problem the Soviets has is because of their, well, the backward state of the country when the Bolsheviks took over. Like, um, you know, Stalin said when the Bolsheviks took over, uh, Russia was 100 years behind the developed world. Uh, So they, they had a lot of catching up to do. Plus, you know, they're in the fucking middle of World War One. Then the Brits and the uh, Americans uh, attack, and and you know in the late uh, nineteen eighteen to support the civil war to support the whites. Mm-hmm. Uh, then they get into a war with Poland in the early twenties, and uh, yeah. you know then they have all of their economic and social problems and blah 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 blah. So by the time it gets to the late thirties, then you have the purges as well. But in terms of just the the uh, scientific infrastructure, the massive laboratories and all of that kind of oh, yeah. jazz, they don't have anything anywhere near as advanced as the more developed countries, and yet they're still making some significant contributions. Yes, they're doing they're doing nuclear physics with a couple of old tin cans <laughs> and chalkboard. Um, yeah, yeah, and they have to build a fire out in the backyard. <laughs> Sometimes they just built the fire in the middle of the lab. Uh, They just bring in refuse from outside, light a fire, put some tin cans on it and throw some uranium in and see what happens. (laughs) But even under those circumstances, when I was a lad, (laughs) used to get up at five o'clock in the morning, two hours before I went to bed. Um, In in April of 1939, Mm -hmm. two of Iggy K's staff, junior colleagues, were able to figure out that a fissioned nucleus emitted between two and four neutrons. And so, therefore, you could create a chain reaction. We went into the science on that in the Manhattan Project episodes. We don't need to do that again. But they worked that out themselves 
using tin cans, a fire, right. and some homeless people that they would just say, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, just stand hold, here. Hold this. And, yeah. Um, you know, yeah, if you die, um, good job. <laughs> Try not to die. But if you do, yeah. you know, you, you, you contribute something to Soviet science. So we'll, we'll put you on a stamp, maybe. Well, well, let me just throw that. Let me take it in a slightly different direction. But, and you could probably speak to this better than I can. But I, I think one of the things that gets lost in the West is the mathematical genius capabilities, whatever you want to call it, of the Russians in general. That's something they've always been good at. It's it's benefiting them here because they don't have the resources of the West. They're brilliant uh, composers, chess players. It's going to help them in working with uh, work, you know, working uh, intelligence and also um, crypt- cryptology. That's what I'm looking for as far as being able to set up codes and break out those codes. So they've got one hand tied behind their back because they don't have the resources. They've almost got the other tied hand tied behind their back because there's a lot of a lot of the uh, the minerals and the stuff that they need in their country. And, and, and we don't have to go into this, but there was actually one mine uh, right before the World War One, and it was actually owned by a private company who wouldn't share anything with the scientists. And in fact, the communists come along and they take care of that by saying, we're now in charge. Everything's going to be seized and given over to the academy, which really helped them. But they're just their ability to be brilliant mathematicians is going to get them through some of the harder, darker times of the 1930s when they don't, when they can't compete with everyone else as far as just being able to throw a ton of money at this stuff. And it's that kind of professionalism, dedication, and pride that's going to set them up. So when they do decide to take it even further with the war, they're going to be they're going to be set just because very hard workers and the conditions that these guys were living under in these various academies they weren't sitting around in comfortable places smoking tons of cigarettes like you like you saw with the Manhattan Project it was bare bones but they were still getting the work done and, and just being brilliant mathematicians made a lot of that possible I'll tell you something else <clears throat> that I think the the West doesn't think about mm-hmm. in terms of this kind of stuff not the, the the Russia would have been able to do none of this if it hadn't been for the revolution and, and the Bolsheviks That's and true. socialism. Yeah. Like you take Iggy K, Kurchatov, um, like born into a, a small family. I think his father was a surveyor. Um, if, if he'd been born 20, 30 years earlier under the czarist oh, yeah. regime, He's not going his anywhere. opportunities yeah. would have been extremely limited. Yeah, I yeah. mean, there were people who could get things, you know, they, they, they did get an education and go on, but <clears throat> they, they, it was very, very difficult to rise up. Now, because of the revolution, because of the uh, uh, socialist attitude towards education mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and equal opportunity, Guys like these scientists who were who grew up uh, in the you know post-revolutionary era of the Soviet Union had opportunities to get an education yes. that they probably would not have had uh, if if the revolution hadn't happened. So and and particularly you know Stalin in his years of running things like from you know the late twenties onwards. Was a was a big believer in education, a big believer in yeah, changed his life. The, the, the i, well, the idea, yeah, and the idea that the Soviet Union had to not only catch up with the developed world but surpass it 
in industry, technology, science. That's one of the reasons why you know, a lot of these guys, uh, well, why there's this focus on chess, for example. Right. Chess, chess was obviously one of the ways that the Soviet Union thought they could demonstrate to the world the uh, superior methods of, of education and freedom uh, for people to get an education, these sorts of things. So, yeah, they deserve, they deserve a lot of the credit for guys like Kurchatov even being there uh, to snatch up. They produced, the Soviet Union produced lots of great thinkers, <clears throat> and musicians and, and artists, obviously, uh, before. But uh, really, it's after the revolution where you see these guys really, like all of the great Russian composers of the 20th century. Now, a lot of them had problems, and we'll talk about that over the next few episodes with the... Uh, the cultural uh, controls mm-hmm. that were implemented during Stalin's regime and later too, uh, you know, Soviet formalism, those sorts of things, mm-hmm. the, crit- the critique of formalism under the Soviets. But, um, you know, it, 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 uh, a lot of the opportunities that they had were also made available because of the um, open democratic nature of the Soviet Union. I know a lot of people will snort milk out of their nose when they hear me say democratic, but it was in their own way. Um, And and we'll talk a bit about that too. Like the the constitution of 1934 that Stalin set up was uh, extremely uh, democratic. Uh, It it also happened to concur with the Great Purge. But um, so, you know, there was a lot of advancements and progressive things going on. On the other hand, a lot of repression going on at the same time as well. How do those things coexist? Well, they just did. Yeah. And we'll get into the the whys and wherefores later on. <laughs> if, if I can add on to that real quick, one of the first things that Lenin did after the 1917 revolution, of course, you've got the civil war going on, but even during that time, he has someone, he has one of his people talk to the leader of the Academy of Sciences, which is in at the currently at the time it was in uh, St. Petersburg. And he's like, we want to bring, one of our first goals is to bring electricity to all parts of Russia. Now, obviously, Russia is the largest country in the world, but what it is, is the, the government is like, this is a very huge goal. Obviously, we want to work on it. We want to donate. We want to contribute a lot of resources to the Academy. You figure out a way to to make this happen. And that's what a lot of the scientists were doing at first. They're trying to think of different ways to help the people of Russia, help the state, that kind of stuff. But then when you have a lot of these scientific discoveries come along in the 1920s, certainly 1932, that starts to motivate and excite the Russian scientists who on their own, without the state telling them to do it, start studying, studying, uh, you know, the nuclear field to try to come up with something uh, like a cheaper form of energy. So again, the the communists don't get a lot of credit for things that the ones, the goals that they, they were trying to set and the freedom that they were giving the scientists because the scientists figured out very early how to lie and trick these government officials who had no idea what they were doing. So the scientists had freedom for a very long time, at least the 1920s and the 1930s. So again, that's just another thing that the communists after the revolution, do do not get credit for. Yeah. So um, the same year that Iggy K's guys developed the um, chain reaction, neutron-emitting stuff, a couple of other physicists, also working under him, discovered the spontaneous fission of uranium, where, where it will... Um, 
fission without being bombarded by neutrons. Right. So they're, they're making lots of very, very early breakthroughs. And so uh, as a result of these, Iggy K wrote to the Academy of Sciences and said, hey, listen, we need to ramp this shit up. <laughs> like we, we, we've, we, we're figuring out how to, how to make this uranium uh, work, how, we, mm-hmm. how to create fission. Uh, and but we're not going fast enough. You know, we, we need to throw money. We need to throw people at this. Yes. This is really, really important stuff. We need to scale it up. And in August of 1940, he and one of his colleagues sent the Academy of Sciences a plan of research. They said we need to build an experimental reactor. There's only so far we can go with tin cans and homeless people and, <laughs> and uh, you know, trash fires. Fingers people. crossed. Like, yeah. Quite frankly... We've done pretty well uh, with that, but uh, there's only so many stray dogs that we can use to Aww. start a fire with. Right. We, uh, we, need, we, need, we need a proper reactor. And they talked about the military and the economic importance of nuclear energy. Uh, obviously, it was fairly well understood that they were probably going to um, end up in a war with Germany at some stage. Mm-hmm. Uh, they hoped, Stalin hoped that he had at least five years. Yes. Um, but, you know, they're like, hey, you know, the Germans are working on this. The Americans and the British are probably working on this. Uh, we need to be working on this. Yeah, survival. Well. Yeah. But in November of 1940, there was a conference on nuclear physics in Moscow and uh, Klopin guy I mentioned earlier who was heading up the uh, Radium Institute, he got up and uh, he was also the head of the Uranium Commission at the time that the government had set up to investigate uranium. And he gave the speech where he said, look, there are some young physicists. I'm not looking in any particular direction, (laughs) but, uh, you know, just have a look at, you know, the guys with the crazy beards. (laughs) Was are so obsessed that with the uranium problem that uh, you know they're forgetting about our current needs. Nuclear yes. energy yes. is all well and good, but it's a distant pros, right. uh, project prospect. Right. It's going to take us decades to figure that out. We got real problems. We got people that are hungry. We've got uh, massive problems in the country. We, we need to be thinking about uh, things that we can really use in a real war that might happen soon. Um, so it's kind of unrealistic yeah. to be expecting us to throw time, money and effort into something that's not going to deliver returns for decades. Yeah. And so Klopin obviously gave uh, Iggy K his answer there that, look, the Uranium Commission would not be supporting the uh, ramp-up of the work on nuclear fission. It continued, the work continued, but not on a scale like they would have needed in order to uh, keep pace with what's about to happen in the United States. Now, Iggy K didn't take that standing down. Uh, He and Semenov, the guy Mm who uh, was in charge of the um, Institute of Physical Chemistry, they wrote a variety of letters to the the Politburo saying, listen, we need to create a bomb. This is going to be the greatest bomb of all time. 
and they didn't get a response before the Germans invaded. Oh. Now, of course, once the Germans invaded, everyone was busy. Um, so all of the nuclear research that was going on in the Soviet Union, as small as that was, came to a halt. Everyone had to focus on pushing out the invaders. Yeah. But then early in 1942, the Soviet leadership, the Politburo, became a lot more interested in the bomb (laughs) when their spies started to inform them about the uh, amount of effort the British, Americans and Germans were putting into it. Uh, In April of 1942, Mikhail Provukin who was the Deputy Premier of the Soviet Union and the People's Commissar of the Chemical Industry, basically the Minister of the Chemicals Industry, Mm -hmm. was summoned by our old friend Molotov and he gave him a thick file that contained all of the information from the spies on the, the foreign work on the bomb. Molotov said, I'm giving you this on the direct orders of Comrade Stalin. He wants you to read them and advise what should be done. Right. Now, Pervukin read them and said, well, we need to give them to the physicists and they will be able to tell us what it it all means. I don't understand this. (laughs) Like, uh, I I don't don't have a Nobel Prize in physics or chemistry. (laughs) Are you crazy? So... Uh, they agreed, Molotov agreed, but said that Pervukin would be given responsibility oh, for shit. what they called the uranium problem. Right. Figuring out what they should do and how they should go about doing yeah. it. Then in uh, May of that year, 1942, Georgi Fliorov, one of Iggy K's former students, mm-hmm. he was one of the guys that discovered spontaneous fission of uranium in 1940. He was now a lieutenant in the Air Force. He was serving on at the front in uh, Voronezh. Damn. And he had a break uh, in, in mass slaughter and uh, being mass slaughtered. And he popped in at the university library there to check out the physics journals to see what was going on with nuclear fission research. Right. It's like, well, obviously... Obviously, they're going to be going hell for leather on this. This is the biggest thing humans have discovered ever since the wheel. Uh, Obviously, they're going to be making a lot of progress. Even though I'm not there, I'm I'm out here trying to shoot Nazis. But uh, when he read through it, he found nothing had happened. He wrote a letter to Stalin saying, Comrade Stalin... (laughs) Uh, seriously, WTF, angry face, angry face, broken heart, broken heart, broken heart. And it was the three broken heart emojis that really did it for Stalin. If it was just two, Stalin wouldn't have even bothered. But three got his attention. He goes, wow, it must be serious if there are three broken heart emojis in here. Jesus. Uh, Fliorov wrote, it is essential not to lose any time in building the uranium bomb. Now... He's basically said, look, the Americans are going to be, you know, they're not going to be fucking around with this. Do you really want the Americans to have a bomb like this that can destroy a city and we don't have one? Yeah. So in the course of 1942, the the Politburo had held meetings and consultations with leading uh, 
Russian physicists, chemists, etc., to try and figure out, you know, how realistic this was, etc., etc. Yeah. And at one meeting, apparently, Stalin threw a massive tantrum. Oh, shit. That it was a young lieutenant for, at the front. Yeah. And not the members of the academy that had... Uh, brought this to his attention and insisted on the importance of this so that, you know, yeah. they uh, had to go straight home after that and change their pants. Luckily, they all wore brown <laughs> pants that day. So it didn't stand uh, out. Yeah, yeah, basically any day you had a meeting with Stalin, you wore your brown pants. Good call. And a red shirt. Yeah. yeah. In case you get yeah. shot. What's that smell shit? coming from? Wow, it's not me, um, it's, obviously. It's Mother Russia. If, if I could give that a little context for a second. So at the end of 1941 and, and early 1942, when the, when the Soviets figure out that the Germans aren't going to be able to take Moscow, even though they broke down hundreds of factories and moved them to the Ural so they could start production again, that kind of stuff, um, that was one thing that slowed down the process. Uh, along with everything else that you mentioned. But the other part of it was, I think it was at least since 1932, the physicists were telling their political masters, look, you need to send teams out all over Russia. Yes, I know it's a big country, but you need to be sending people out all over the world to find out and to list and to categorize and find out who owns this stuff. All the different materials related to our subject in case one day we need to be able to go and get it we'll know where it's at so it's all worked out beforehand and for whatever reason that that just didn't happen uh the interwar years it didn't happen and now that the war is here it's not happening because everybody's worried about surviving so they're again they're in some ways they're starting even further back because they don't even realize what they have the amounts that they have in these different materials that they're going to use and where they're located at so that's another thing they're going to have to hop on in the middle of a war but if you're going to do it unless you're going to steal it from another country you have to find out where your stuff is at and that's just another stumbling block they're going to have to work through while they're fighting off the germans yeah and and of course we we don't need to remind people i'm sure this isn't one of those oh, American-style wars. Oh, we'll go over to a foreign country <laughs> right. and uh, throw a few people at yeah. it. They're here. This, this <laughs> how many how many Nazis were in Russia at the, in the Soviet Union at the time? Yeah, three point like, two million. Yeah, right. <laughs> Plus uh, another eight hundred thousand of various other countries. So roughly four million uh, people trying to kill you and take your stuff. And they made it all the yeah. way to the gates of Moscow, practically. So yeah, yeah. Yeah, crazy. Within like four days, right? It was crazy. <laughs> so they got a few things that they're dealing with they're here. They're busy. I'm busy uh, right now. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> um, <clears throat> but uh, Stalin, you know, was g- giving it serious thought. Now he was worried about the cost of developing a oh, bomb. Yes. He, was, a couple of the scientists, advised him that it would cost as much as the entire war effort. <laughs> And they weren't kidding. No. I can't remember what the Americans... Well, the Americans, it was like $2 billion Two billion and some the change. Americans spent on it. Right. Yeah. And what was the rest of the war effort? Can you remember? Oh. Oh, was it 20... Oh, I... Mm, I can't remember. I can't remember. Yeah. yeah, I can't remember the comparisons. But it was a, you know, it was a ton of money, yes. obviously. Yes. ton of money. Even the Americans balked at it for a long time. Um, but, uh, you know, they dug deep and they, they got it done. Right. Soviet Union, obviously at the time, their, their no economy, no, yeah. well, there's nowhere near as well right. off, uh, as the United States is at this stage. So, um, you know, that, that's a lot of money for the Soviet Union. Yeah. But 
Nevertheless, Stalin decided to initiate a small-scale research project. Mm -hmm. And Iggy Kay, who had been taken off nuclear research at the start of the war, is put back on it and chosen as the scientific director. This is when he begins to grow the beard. Nice. So work finally began on it around February or March 1943. Damn. Uh, I think that's a little bit later than the Manhattan Project. Yes. That was in 42. Which, 42, I I think. Yeah, right? Yes. So they're starting late. They're starting small. um, And they've got four million Nazis trying to kill them uh, (laughs) while they're doing it. One interesting thing I read that the counteroffensive at the Battle of Stalingrad. Uh-huh. St- did I say Stalingrad? Stalingrad. Stalingrad. Yeah. You got it. Stalingrad. I, yeah, but I did it. I, I just weirded it up. I, I Christopher <laughs> walked it a bit. <laughs> the counteroffensive at Stalingrad planned. Anyway, well, it's, uh, what's his face? Captain Kirk. The counteroffensive at Stalin. Grad planned in <laughs> September 1942. It's going to take a while. Um, yeah. Its code name was Uran. Right. Which is normally translated as Uranus, but it's also Russian for uranium. Ah. So uh, one of the books that I read suggested that that may have been deliberate. Stalin may have been thinking about the uranium problem and uh, uh, named the counteroffensive after that. Nice. Who knows? I'm sure it was on his mind. But yeah. There were a lot of people uh, who thought it was a pointless waste of resources that could be used to build shit that you can actually shoot someone with. Right. But, you know, and Stalin obviously didn't think that it was going to be even useful in the immediate war effort. Right. No one, of course, knew how long the war was going to take, but um, World War I had been over in, what, four years, um, four or five years. Mm -hmm. This was going to be, uh, who knows, could have taken as long, less time, more time. No one really knew. Yeah. But, again, the scientists are telling him this is a decade or two of work. So, you know, he he probably doesn't think it's something he's going to help him next week. No. Right, But he's a long-term thinker. Yes. Uncle Joe. Mathematician. Long-term thinker and he's prepared to invest in it. Whereas the the Americans, on the other hand, uh, deliberately did build it with the war in mind. Yes. They thought they were going to use it on the Germans ended up using it on the Japanese. Uh, highly unlikely that Stalin, however, thought it was something that was going to be useful in the short term. Well, if, if I can just add on to that, not only that, because during the 1930s, a lot of the scientists, again, they're like, yeah, I'm sure there's some practical applications. We don't care. We just find this entirely new, well, uh, relatively new field of physics uh, fascinating. We want to be able to study it, leave us alone, government, give us money, and the government, for the most part, does. But the point is, 
um, even if the war ends and no one knows when it's going to end, I mean, Stalin has already lost, I think the the uh, the often quoted number is like 17,000 villages, you know, roughly 20 million people, uh, harvest crops, the Ukraine, all that stuff's been, been ruined. So not only does he hope he can win the war or survive the war, he's then got to rebuild the European half of his country. I mean, this idea of a nuclear weapon, that's way down the road. Yeah, I'll need one one day if someone else gets one, but right now, I've got to survive and win this war. Now, he may have been thinking about the fact that if the Germans are working on this Mm -hmm. and the the West are working on this, the British and the Americans, after this war, I don't know how long it's going to take, but one day we'll be on the other side of it. And if I'm facing enemies in Germany and and in the US and the UK that all have nuclear weapons Mm -hmm. and we don't have them, that is completely unacceptable. Again, the Soviet Union needs to be superior to the capitalists because we need to keep them at bay. Right. There's only one. There's only what? one Soviet Union. Yes. We're surrounded exactly. by capitalist countries yeah. that hate us because of our freedoms. And they're rich. And and they're rich, <laughs> and we need to be able to defend ourselves yeah. from them. So that's I'm guessing that's probably what he's thinking is look we need to we need to get there as quickly as possible yeah even if it doesn't help with the immediate war yeah um, now they they're working on this at the same time they know uh, it's around about this stage they obviously are getting uh, secret intel they kind of know where. The uh, uh, other projects are at mm-hmm. roughly. They're right. getting secret. They know the amount of money that's being thrown at it, the amount of resources, the amount of people, the amount of scientists. But I think you know he's he's also on friendly terms with the US and the UK at this juncture, right? Increasingly friendly as part of the Grand Alliance. Uh, and you know, I genuinely believe that he hoped that they would be able to remain friendly uh, for decades to come yes, because he knew he needed that time like uh, Napoleon did. He needed that time to rebuild, to build his country, to get it running uh, uh, effectively, efficiently. Right, but but more than that, besides having to recover from the war that hopefully he'll be able to survive, um, you don't want to be, because this gets lost in, in American propaganda, you, you can't really think that he's like, okay, as soon as this war is over, I'm going to go back to trying taking over the world or turning everybody communist or whatever. After the war is over, he's outnumbered and he's weakened, so he's not going to be aggressive. He's certainly going to protect his own. He's certainly going to maybe take advantage of any perceived weaknesses of the Western powers because that's what a smart chess players, uh, player does. But you you can't really think that he's going to go out and pick up with whatever maybe Tsar Nicholas wanted with trying to take over Europe or, or other parts of the world. That's just not where he's at. But that's, that's what we get told in the West. He was evil. He was out to take everything. And, and you just have to remember to put everything in context. Well, Look, you know, the fundamental um, one of the fundamental premises of Marxism, Leninism, and Stalinism is that um, the capitalist countries uh, mm-hmm. will try and destroy any socialist country, right? Because it's a it's a threat to their own hegemony. Sure. 
Um, so they fundamentally believed the capitalists would attack them at some stage and try and destroy them, whether a direct attack or a fifth column attack or you know whatever it is, mm-hmm. or economic blockades. They're going to try and destroy uh, the socialist experiments, and, and they were right on that. Capitalist countries did do that and, and continue yeah. to do that. Bernie Sanders today. is finding uh, out. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm thinking about economic blockades of Cuba and Venezuela and North Korea. I mean, that's still going on today. Yeah. Uh, They also believed that the capitalist countries would uh, collapse, like their alliances would collapse through infighting over competition Uh, for dominance. Yes. That didn't happen as much. They, They were wrong there. But they also, you know, they, as you said, they, in the West we talk about, oh, the communists want to take over the world. And as I've pointed out many times in the Marshall Plan episodes, etc., well, so did the capitalists. They both wanted to take over the world yes. with their economic system. Control. And, and because that's power. Power is the more countries you have the more in your system, mm-hmm. the more countries you can trade with. Money, money. And that's, that's you know, long-term sustainable economic prosperity. Yeah, if you're... If you're trying to do it all by yourself and you can't trade, then right. you're fucked unless you've got everything you can ever possibly need, which doesn't happen. Right? Exactly. So, um, so I think he's thinking that long-term, um, even though we have a somewhat friendly alliance with the US and the UK and, and, and they're all Germany's enemy as well right now, yeah. At some point in the future, oh, yeah. they're probably going to gang up on us, and Germany will probably gang up on us as well, because at the end of the day, if the if the capitalists need to choose between rearming Germany and supporting a Soviet socialist country, they're going to go with rearming right. the Nazis, <laughs> right? Rearming the Germans, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. They will even put rearming the fucking Germans ahead of supporting a friendly alliance with and we, socialists. And we do. And we do. And you did. Yeah. Now, so Iggy Kay's back in the job. So he drew, drew, drew up a plan of research with three main goals. One, to achieve a chain reaction in an experimental reactor using natural uranium. Mm-hmm. Two, to develop methods of isotope separation. Three, mm. to study the design of both U-235 and plutonium bombs. Mm. And he starts to build a team slowly, largely using the guys he'd worked with earlier. And by the end of 1943, he had 50 people working Damn. in his new laboratory. By the end of 1944, he had 100 scientists. Now, that's, that's a lot yeah. of scientists, but compared to the Manhattan Project, oh, uh, yeah. where they had like thousands of yeah. people working and on it. And supportive um, staff. It's yeah. tiny. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Well, it, I, and they, you know, they yeah. had the British involved. You know, they had, everyone was involved. Well, I still find it amazing that the guy who is now in charge of this was actually, did you say he was a pilot or he was in the Air Force uh, fighting the war? I mean, you would think that people like that would be exempt, purposefully kept back so they can help contribute. But no, it's gotten so bad the war is so bad that people like that have to go out and fight as well. You would think you would keep, you know, brainiacs like that safely behind the line so they can continue research, but that's not where the Soviet Union was at at the time. But now they know they need the stuff, so they pull these guys away and they start getting organized and working on it. 
By the way, uh, that guy the, who was on the front lines who wrote the letter, he died in 1990. Wow. Yeah. Good for him. And um, he founded his own uh, Fliorov Laboratory of Nuclear Reactions uh, in 1957 and was the director there until 1989. Wow. Also chaired the Scientific Council of the USR, USSR Academy of Science. Damn. Has... An atomic element named after him, fluorovium. Atomic number 114 is named after him. He won the Lenin Prize. He won the Stalin Prize twice, the USSR State Prize, Order of the Patriotic War, Order of the Red Banner of Labor, Order of the October Revolution, two orders of Lenin, and Hero of Socialist socialist Labor. So, So, Brainy Cove. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, like he took a gamble. Writing That's a true. letter saying to Stalin, <laughs> saying, hey, fuckhead. What the Dear fuck? Dear comrade, fuckhead, what are you doing? And uh, paid off. Right. Not many people got away with that, and, but uh, yeah. Fleur of... And Stalin, I bet, doesn't get credit for that either by, you know what? We're right. We should look at this. We should look at this. Yeah. 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 So uh, so that's the project um, by the end of 1944. So as the Nazis start to get defeated, mm-hmm. more and more institutes and scientists are drawn in. And then, of course, in 1945, they, they start to ship German scientists and technicians back to the Soviet Union. They didn't get the best ones. No. The Americans yeah. got the best ones. Fucking a, we but did. They got they got some they got some good guys. Operation Paperclip, baby. We we took what we yeah. wanted. Yeah, yeah. Clippy, Operation <laughs> Clippy. Hello, I see you're trying to build an atomic bomb. Can I help? I think it was more like, hey, I see you have funny hair, thick glasses, and a big beard. Are you a scientist? Yes. Bonk on the back of the head. They wake up. They're in Kansas. <laughs> With a bottle of bourbon and a big-titted blonde on their knee. Whatever works. Whatever works, baby. You want want more big tits and bourbon? Uh, This is Kansas. We got them. Help us build more bombs. Exactly. Exactly. And help us get to the moon, but that's for later. In the spring of 1945, Iggy K ordered work finally to begin on the design of an industrial reactor for producing plutonium. So by the time Stalin meets with Truman and Churchill at the Potsdam conference, he's already got his own serious atomic bomb project underway. Yeah. Now, as you remember, Truman and Churchill... And FDR before Truman hadn't kept Stalin in the loop. Right. Uh, d- despite scientists like Niels Bohr and others uh, recommending that they do that, that you have a international working group on this so they keep everyone in the loop, um, they had decided not to keep the Soviets in the loop, even though they're their allies, they weren't telling them about right. this. Um, and Stalin knew they weren't telling him about this because he, he had spies telling him that they weren't telling him. So he didn't tell them about his project either. Um, I remember, yes, yeah, so I remember when uh, Truman slipped it in. Oh, by the way, Joe, we're, we're working on it. We've got this bomb and we think it's going to be pretty good. He was like, oh, really? Fantastic. Good on you. Keep up the good work. Right. 
And and Truman went to Churchill and went, <laughs> he doesn't realize anything. <laughs> right. I, I have to ask, I don't mean to interrupt you, but I have to ask, you, you've got to know that Truman and not telling Stalin about a very different type of powerful bomb, he, he doesn't tell him about it in... in in specific, a specific sense that he should have, and he uses it. How could Stalin not see that as a threat? It doesn't matter that Stalin already knows it because of his spies. To have the super weapon, if you will, not tell your ally and use it so you demonstrate it, but you don't tell him about it. How can that not be a backward threat, which I think is exactly what Truman was going for, trying to be a strong man here. But but you're already putting on notice your your current ally who doesn't have to be your enemy if you play your cards right. I wonder if, if Truman had fully explained everything and then used the bomb, maybe Stalin wouldn't have seen it as much of a threat, even though he already knew all of the details. But to be fair, we can't blame this all on Truman. He'd only been in the job a few That's months. That's true. FDR I mean, didn't F- tell. F- exactly. FDR had kept it a secret as well for years. That's true. Um, which tells us how much FDR you know, really, really trusted <laughs> Stalin. Right. Um, Good point. So there you go. Yeah. Anyway, in spite of the fact that they, the Soviets kind of knew where the Americans were at uh, and it had their own, it still came as a huge blow to the Russians when the Americans used the bomb in Japan. Alexander Wirth, who was a, a Russian-born, naturalized British journalist and war correspondent, was in Moscow oh. when the bombs hit Japan. Wow. He wrote that the news of the Hiroshima bombing had, quote, an acutely depressing effect on everybody. Uh, uh, yeah. they, he, said, he said that they saw it as a threat to Russia. Hello. And, qu- quote, hello? No, no, I'm just saying, yeah. Oh. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, uh, right. <laughs> and, quote, some Russian pessimists dismally remarked that Russia's desperately hard victory over Germany was now as good as wasted. Good point. Good point. We've we've lost twenty million people. We've you know thrown everything to defeat the Germans, and now the Americans are just going to hit us with a fucking atomic bomb, and we can't um, do anything about it. Yeah. Yeah. Jeez. Now, Worth, by the way, mm-hmm. was one of the group of journalists who were the first to visit a concentration camp. They oh. went to the Majanek uh, camp in Poland, in Lublin. Right. Uh, after the Red Army had discovered it, he was one of the first journalists there. Um, he wrote a report on what he saw there, sent it back to the BBC, and they initially refused to broadcast it sure. because they didn't believe it and thought it was a Soviet propaganda stunt. Right. Not surprised. Because the American soldiers, when they first came upon it, some of them started crying. It was beyond human imagination. Then in December 1945, the British ambassador wrote to the British Foreign Secretary Quote, the German invasion caught them still unready and swept them to what looked like the brink of defeat. Then came the turn of the tide, and with it first the hope and then a growing belief that the immense Benison... What? That's not a word. <laughs> Is that a word? Benison. Benison? 
Shit, it is. That's a word. It means a blessing. The rewards and benisons of marriage. Just fucking use blessings then, dick. Sorry. Cunt. <laughs> fucking British Show off. Cunt. Show <laughs> They're trying to get on the um, periodic table of something named after them. Anyway, please go ahead. A growing belief that the immense benefit, <laughs> blessings of national security was at last within their reach. Right. As the Red Army moved westwards, belief became confidence, and the final defeat of Germany made confidence conviction. Mm. Then, plump, came the atomic bomb. At a blow, the balance, which had now seemed set and steady, was rudely shaken. Russia was balked by the West when everything seemed to be within her grasp. The 300 divisions were shorn of much of their value. Right. Yeah. And uh, Harriman, uh, who was the US ambassador to Moscow at the time, basically reported the same thing to Washington. The Soviets were devastated by the fact that the Americans now had this technology. Right. And, of course, Stalin's immediate reaction, even before the bomb hit, when Truman, you know, gave his offhand remark at Pop Stand, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, we got this thing. I think we're going yeah. to think we're going to think we're going to use it. Yeah. I think you'll like it. Um, true, Stalin's immediate reaction was to go to Iggy K and tell him to hurry the fuck up. <laughs> Iggy K was like, give me more money and more people. All right. Why are we yelling? I love lamp. Uh, and I guess that's where we'll wrap up episode 149. Right. <laughs> My stage name, bitch. <laughs> That's my name. <laughs> People brag about it. Of the Soviet military buildup on the island of Cuba. The purpose of these bases can be none other than to provide a nuclear strike capability against the Western Hemisphere. Damn. Politically motivated. Yeah. Sons of